Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Dan Lage back here again on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast where we read the cases so you don't have to. It's the week of December 7th, 2020. In criminal law in Connecticut, bringing us three cases on the docket this week. One case discussing successive petitions in habeas corpus, and then two very important cases out of the Supreme Court. Slip opinions, we normally wait until they're published officially. We'll make an exception this week for these two. One case that talks about what a judge needs to tell the jury regarding jailhouse informant testimony, and another that discusses what a trial court should do when presented with evidence that calls into question the reliability of certain scientific evidence purported to be admissible by the state of Connecticut against a criminal defendant. We will start with our habeas corpus case. Two notes before we begin. State versus Rivera was released by the Supreme Court this week. We did cover that on the podcast last week, so go ahead and tune into the November 30th pod to catch our recap of that. The second, at the end of this podcast, I'll be tossing it to my buddy John Drapp, a Bridgeport lawyer here in Connecticut, who will be giving you a special update from a probate appeal released this week. So let's get to it. Our first case is Conjua versus the Commissioner of Correction. Citation is AC43322. Judge Dipentima officially released December 8th, 2020. Here are your facts. The petitioner, Mr. Conjua, is a Cameroonian citizen who had resided in the United States since 2010 as a long-term permanent resident with a green card. He was arrested on November 29, 2013 and charged with sexual assault in the first degree of an 83-year-old woman for whom he had been working. He entered a plea of not guilty and elected a trial by jury on December, 20, on December 16, 2014, after the jury had been picked. But right before evidence was set to begin, he accepted a plea agreement to the reduced charge of sexual assault in the third degree. Before accepting the petitioner's guilty plea, the trial court canvassed him and found that the plea was made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. A pre-sentence investigation was ordered, and thereafter, on March 4, 2015, the petitioner was sentenced in accordance with the agreed-upon disposition of five years, suspended after 20 months with 10 years probation. 
The petitioner was also required to register as a sex offender for 10 years and did not file an appeal. While he was serving his sentence, the United States Department of Homeland Security initiated deportation proceedings against him. They cited that conviction for sexual assault in the third degree as ground for removal from the United States. A warrant for his arrest was served on July 14, 2015, and he was taken into federal custody. Thereafter, the petitioner filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus, alleging two claims. The first, ineffective assistance of trial counsel for the improper advice concerning the immigration consequences of a guilty plea. And the second claim, a due process challenge to his guilty plea on the basis that it was not knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily made. The Commissioner of Correction filed a return, alleging that the petitioner's due process claim was procedurally defaulted. On May 16, 2018, the habeas court issued a memorandum of decision in which it denied the petition. The habeas court specifically found that the petitioner failed to establish trial counsel had rendered ineffective assistance and had not established cause and prejudice sufficient to overcome the procedural default. On appeal, the appellate court rejected the petitioner's claims that the first habeas court committed error regarding his ineffective assistance claim and in concluding that his second claim was procedurally defaulted. On August 17th, the self-represented petitioner filed a second habeas action alleging that his plea was not made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily because he had been under the influence of medication that had caused him to become passive and to accept a guilty plea unconsciously. He did not receive the benefit of an interpreter, and his counsel coerced him to plead guilty. On July 11, 2019, pursuant to practice book 23-29, subsection 3, the habeas court sua sponte dismissed that second habeas petition as successive in that it presented the same grounds as the prior petition, which was previously denied and failed to state any new facts or proffer any new evidence not reasonably available at the time of the prior petition. The habeas court then denied the petitioner's petition for certification to appeal from that dismissal. This appeal followed, and he has two claims here for the appellate court. One, the trial court abused its discretion in denying his petition for certification to appeal, and two, improperly dismissed his habeas action as successive. So let's get to our first claim here. Claim one, the denial of the petition for certification. As to his first claim, he argued that the court erred, obviously, in that denial. The standard of review here is pretty clear. The appellate court states that regarding the habeas court's denial of certification to appeal, the petitioner's first burden is to demonstrate that the habeas court's ruling constituted an abuse of discretion, and in determining whether the habeas court abused its discretion in denying the petitioner's request, the court reviews the petitioner's substantive claims for the purpose of ascertaining whether those claims satisfy one or more of the following three criteria. One, that there's an abuse of discretion by demonstrating that the issues are debatable amongst jurists of reason. Criteria number two, that the court could resolve the issues in a different manner. Or criteria number three, the questions are adequate to deserve encouragement to proceed further. Well, Judge Pintima dispatched this claim quite quickly, holding that uh, on the basis of the appellate court's review of the petitioner's substantive claims, the petitioner failed to demonstrate one or more of those previously mentioned criteria. So let's look at the substantive claim. And this is essentially claim two here in the case, whether or not the trial court improperly dismissed the habeas petition as successive. The petitioner here specifically argues that he raised new factual allegations and a new legal ground 
in his second petition. He contended that his first habeas petition centered on ineffective assistance rendered by trial counsel in failing to advise him of the immigration consequences of his guilty plea. While this new second petition focused on the involuntariness of his plea as a result of the psychological effect of his medication, the lack of an interpreter, and the coercive conduct by his lawyer. The appellate court set forth the well-established standard of review that conclusions reached by the habeas court in its decision to dismiss a habeas petition are matters of law and subject to a plenary review, citing in this case Zalo versus Commissioner of Correction, that's 133 Connecticut Appellate 266. The appellate court here holds that the petitioner cannot prevail on this claim as the habeas court was not required to determine the merits of the second habeas petition because pursuant to practice book 23-29 subsection 3, let's stop here. What does that say? Well, that practice book provision provides in relevant, relevant part, quote, the judicial authority may at any time upon its own motion or upon the motion of the respondent dismiss the petition or any count thereof if it determines that, among other things, the petition presents the same ground as a prior petition previously denied and fails to state new facts or to proffer new evidence not reasonably available at the time of the prior petition. So that's the important language here. In this case, the petitioner's second petition presented the same ground as the first petition and the petitioner failed to state new facts not reasonably available at the time of his prior petition. Now he argues does the petitioner that his second petition was not successive because the first one alleged ineffective assistance and the second petition alleged involuntariness of the plea. The appellate court disagrees and concludes that both petitions challenged voluntariness of the guilty plea. The appellate court has previously held that, quote, two grounds are not identical if they seek different relief, unquote, citing Carter versus Commissioner of Correction, 133 Connecticut Appellate, 387. So although the factual allegations in the two operative petitions were not the same, the legal ground and the relief sought by the petitioner was the same in both the first and second petition. Now, furthermore, the appellate court concluded that the petitioner could not prevail on his argument that the second petition alleged new facts not reasonably available at the time of his first petition, because in the first action, the petitioner's original non-operative petition alleged a due process violation, claiming that his guilty plea was not made knowingly, intelligently, or voluntarily because he was under the influence of medication. Trial counsel pressured him to plead guilty, and he had trouble understanding and communicating with trial counsel because English was not his first language, and he did not always have the benefit of an interpreter during their conversations. The court reasoned that although that petition was later amended, to eliminate those grounds, the petitioner clearly knew of their existence at the time of the first petition. Now, this was a first petition he filed pro se, which was later amended by counsel to eliminate those claims. But he can't say, especially when he was the pro se uh, petitioner in that first petition, that he could not have clearly known of their existence at the time of that first petition. And that defeats any argument made on appeal that these grounds were not reasonably available at the time of that first petition. In sum, that appeal is dismissed by the appellate court in this case, and we move on to our next case right now, and that's State versus Jones from the Supreme Court. Your citation is SC20261. Justice Ecker drafting the opinion. We have a concurrence by Justice Palmer. We have a dissent by Chief Justice Robinson with whom 
Justice Mullins and Khan join, released Tuesday, December 1, 2020, as a slip opinion. We bring it to you today. Here are your facts. On the evening of June 21, 2010, the victim, Mr. Michael Williams, was shot to death with a 9mm pistol outside of the Charles Green's Homes housing complex in Bridgeport. When the police arrived to investigate the shooting, they found 20 to 30 people in the area where the victim's body was discovered, but these potential witnesses were unwilling to cooperate with the police investigation. Four days after the victim's murder, Bridgeport Police Detective John Ten interviewed the defendant. During the video recorded interview, the defendant informed Ten that he had not known the victim and was not even in Bridgeport on the night of the victim's murder. The defendant stated that he was in Norwalk on that night, visiting his childhood friend, Benjamin Bowe. Ten later questioned Mr. Bowe, who denied that he was with the defendant on that night. Detective Ten also interviewed the defendant's ex-girlfriend, Chanel Lawson, who interviewed Ten that the defendant did know the victim. There were no further developments in the investigation until many years later, when two cooperating witnesses approached the state with information regarding the victim's murder. Witness number one is Angela Teal. In September 2012, she was picked up on drug charges and told the police that she had been a resident of the Greens Homes housing complex at the time, a friend of the victim, and an eyewitness to the murder. On the night of June 21, 2010, Teal saw the defendant approach the victim on the playground outside of the Greens Homes housing complex dressed in blue shorts and a black hoodie. The defendant threw his hood on, walked up to the victim, and shot him once in the back of the head with a pistol. The defendant then ran out of the playground. Witness number two is Larry Shannon. In February 2013, he approached the police with information regarding the victim's murder when he was in pretrial detention on two felony charges. No one else was present at the time of this conversation. Shannon told police the following, that on the night of the victim's murder, Shannon was visiting the Greens Homes housing complex when he saw the defendant, whom he had known for about two or three months, dressed in jeans and a black hoodie. The defendant was hooded up, which Shannon found to be suspicious because it was nice outside. Soon afterward, he heard gunshots and tried to run away, but he fell down due to a recent surgery on his Achilles tendon. Shannon met up with his stepbrother, who was a resident of the Greens Homes housing complex, and they walked around the corner and the victim was slumped on the playground. The next day, on June 22nd, Shannon encountered the defendant at the Marina Village housing complex in Bridgeport when a news clip came on television about the murder. The defendant admitted to Shannon that he did it. The defendant then held a silver 9mm Ruger handgun and confessed to Shannon that he walked up to the victim and said, What's poppin' now? and then fired. The defendant subsequently was arrested and charged with murder, carrying a pistol without a permit, and criminal possession of a firearm. At the defendant's jury trial, the state relied primarily on the testimony of Teal and Shannon to establish the defendant's commission of the crimes charged. Additionally, the state presented the testimony of Bo and Lawson, as well as portions of the defendant's video-recorded interview with Ten, to contradict the defendant's statements that he was in Norwalk on the night of the murder and that he did not know the victim. The state did not present any physical evidence linking the defendant to the victim's murder or the firearm used in the commission of the offense, which the police never recovered. At the conclusion of the trial, defense counsel requested a special credibility instruction with respect to Shannon's testimony in accordance with State v. Patterson, 276 Connecticut 452. The defendant contended that a jailhouse informant instruction was warranted because Shannon, quote, was incarcerated and awaiting trial for felony charges when he first provided information to the police. 
testify that he provided such information to the police because he wanted to get out of jail and because he hoped to receive a favorable disposition on his pending criminal charges and, in fact, received these benefits as a result of the information he provided to the police in February 2013, unquote. The state did not object to the requested instruction, but the trial court declined to issue it and instead issued a general credibility instruction. After the case was submitted to the jury for deliberation, the jury asked to review the testimony of both Teal and Shannon. The jury also asked the trial court to replay the defendant's June 25, 2010 video recorded interview with Detective 10, as well as Lawson's testimony. After reviewing the requested information and deliberating further, the defendant was found guilty of the charged offenses. The trial court rendered judgment in accordance with that verdict and sentenced the defendant to 50 years in prison. The appellate court affirmed that judgment and determined that the defendant was not entitled to a jailhouse informant instruction pursuant to State v. Diaz 302 Con 93 and State v. Salmond 179 Connecticut Appellate 605 on the ground that Shannon, quote, did not testify as to a confession that the defendant made while they were fellow inmates. The appellate court determined that the trial court's general credibility instruction was sufficient because Shannon testified about events that he had witnessed and a, con- and a confession took place while both he and the defendant were socializing outside of the prison environment. So we have our facts. Let's get to our claim here on appeal with the Supreme Court. The jailhouse informant instruction, was it necessary in this case? On appeal, the defendant claimed that he was entitled to that instruction because Shannon was an incarcerated witness who had a strong incentive to fabricate false testimony regarding the defendant's confession to the commission of the crimes charged. The defendant argued that Shannon was in pretrial detention at the time that he approached police with information and that Shannon expected to, and in fact did receive, special favor from the state in exchange for said testimony. Now, the state countered that Shannon was not a jailhouse informant for whom a special credibility instruction was required because unlike a jailhouse confession, which easily can be fabricated and is difficult to meaningly cross-examine, Testimony about a confession that incurred, that occurred outside of a prison not, is not easily fabricated and may meaningfully be tested by cross-examination. It's also subject to comparison with other evidence in the case. The standard of review here is that, in general, a criminal defendant is not entitled to an instruction singling out any of the state's witnesses and highlighting his or her possible motive for testifying falsely. That's State versus Diaz, which we've already mentioned. However, a special credibility instruction is required for jailhouse informants because, one, they have an unusually strong motive to implicate the accused falsely, that's State versus Patterson. Two, confession evidence may be the most damaging evidence of all, same case. And three, false confessions are easy to fabricate, but difficult to subject to meaningful cross-examination, citing State versus Diaz again. With these principles in mind, The Supreme Court first considered the issue presented by this case, whether a trial court properly rejects a criminal defendant's request to charge the jury regarding the special credibility principles governing jailhouse informant testimony when an informant who was incarcerated at the time he or she approached the police with information regarding the defendant's commissions of the crimes charged then testifies at trial as to an alleged confession that the defendant made outside of the prison environment. The Supreme Court here stated that the Diaz case delineates a clear distinction between a classic jailhouse informant, 
who testifies regarding inculpatory statements that the defendant made while the informant and the defendant were both incarcerated at the same time, and an incarcerated witness who offers testimony, quote, about events concerning the crime that the witness observed, unquote, outside of prison. For the former category of witnesses, the trial court is required to give a jailhouse informant instruction pursuant to Patterson and State v. Arroyo, 292 Connecticut, 558. Whereas cross-examination and argument by counsel are far more likely to be adequate tools for exposing the truth with respect to the latter type of witness, and consequently, a jailhouse informant instruction is not required. The Supreme Court concluded that in this case, however, Shannon did not fit either category of witness described in Diaz, as Shannon was neither the classic jailhouse informant nor was he an incarcerated witness whose testimony is solely about events that he observed outside of prison. As to whether the holdings in Patterson and Arroyo apply to Shannon, an incarcerated witness who testified about inculpatory statements that the, the defendant made outside of prison, the Supreme Court, after exercising plenary review, concluded that the logic and policy driving its precedent compels the conclusion that Patterson and Arroyo apply to witnesses like Shannon who were incarcerated at the time they offered or provided testimony regarding a defendant's inculpatory statements, regardless of the location where those statements were made. The Supreme Court noted that Public Act 19-131 defines a jailhouse witness as a person who offers or provides testimony concerning statements made to such person by another person with whom he or she was incarcerated or an incarcerated person who offers or provides testimony concerning statements made to such person by another person who is suspected of or charged with committing a criminal offense. The Supreme Court stated that the procedural protections embodied in the public act are applicable regardless of whether an incarcerated witness testifies as to statements the defendant made inside or outside of prison, so by concluding that a jailhouse informant under Patterson and its progeny is the same as a jailhouse witness under Public Act 19-131 and Public Act 19-132, the court has created a harmonious body of law relating to the same subject matter consistent with the intent of the legislature. Accordingly, the Supreme Court held that the trial court improperly denied the defendant's unopposed request for a jailhouse informant instruction as Shannon was a jailhouse informant for whom a special credibility instruction was required. The Supreme Court in this case next determined whether the trial court's failure to charge was harmful. The Supreme Court began its analysis by stating that because an instructional error relating to general principles of witness credibility is not constitutional in nature, the defendant bears the burden of establishing that the error deprived him of his due process right to a fair trial, again citing State v. Patterson. In determining whether a non-constitutional error is harmless when an appellate court has a fair assurance that the error did not substantially affect the verdict, the court considers several factors. One, the extent to which the jailhouse informant's apparent motive for falsifying his testimony was brought to the attention of the jury by cross-examination or otherwise. Two, the nature of the court's instructions on witness credibility. Three, whether the informant's testimony was corroborated by substantial independent evidence. And then four, the relative importance of the informant's testimony to the state's case as a whole, citing State versus Arroyo. 
As to factor one, the Supreme Court stated that it favored the state in this case because, as the state pointed out, quote, the jury was well aware of Shannon's admitted motivational self-interest, the two and one half year delay in Shannon coming forward, the fact of his incarceration, the pending charges that admittedly drove him to provide the police with information, and the benefits that he admittedly received from the police and the state before he testified, all of which were elicited during his examination and highlighted in the closing arguments of counsel. Unquote. Turning to factor two, the Supreme Court noted that the trial court issued a general credibility instruction, which advised the jury that when evaluating the credibility of a witness, it should consider, among other things, any interest, bias, prejudice, or sympathy that a witness may apparently have for or against the state or the accused or in the outcome of the trial. Although the trial court singled out Shannon's testimony for special consideration because he previously had been convicted of certain felonies, the Supreme Court concluded that the trial court failed to inform the jury of the other factors that it properly may consider when evaluating someone like Shannon, including the extent to which his testimony is confirmed by other evidence, the specificity of the testimony, the extent to which the testimony contains details known only by the perpetrator, the extent to which the details of the testimony can be obtained from a source other than the defendant, the informant's criminal record, any benefits received in exchange for the testimony or providing information to the police or the prosecutor, whether the witness expects to receive a benefit in exchange for that testimony or providing information to the police or prosecutor, regardless of whether such an agreement actually exists, whether the witness previously provided reliable or unreliable information and the circumstances under which the witness initially provided the information to the police or the prosecutor, including whether the witness was responding to leading questions. As to factors three and four, the Supreme Court considered them conjunctively and concluded that they militate in favor of the conclusion that the trial court's instructional error substantially affected the verdict and deprived the defendant of his right to a fair trial. The Supreme Court reasoned that there was no physical evidence linking the defendant to the victim's murder, and the defendant's confession to Shannon was brief, nonspecific, and did not contain any details known only to the perpetrator. The sole evidence corroborating the confession was Teal's eyewitness testimony, but Teal suffered from credibility problems of her own, in light of her own self-interested motives arising from her involvement in the criminal justice system. Teal waited more than two years to inform the police that she had witnessed the murder, and she came forward only after she had been picked up on these drug charges. Although there was no evidence in the record that the state dropped the charges against Teal in exchange for her testimony, the court noted that it had previously recognized that, quote, there is frequently an implicit understanding that an informant involved in the criminal justice system will receive some consideration in exchange for testifying, unquote, citing, again, State versus Diaz. The Supreme Court further noted that the only person who corroborated Teal's testimony was Shannon, and the only person who corroborated Shannon's testimony was, you guessed it, Teal. Therefore, given the interdependence of Teal and Shannon's testimony, the critical importance of their testimony to the case, the long delay precipitating their decision to come forward, and the powerful personal self-interest that both witnesses had to testify against the defendant in light of their own involvement in the criminal justice system, the jury might have viewed both witnesses' testimony differently if it had received proper instruction on evaluating Shannon's credibility. Accordingly, the Supreme Court could not conclude that the trial court's improper refusal to issue the informant instruction requested by the defendant was harmless. In sum, the judgment of the appellate court was reversed and the case remanded.
In the concurring opinion in this case, Justice Palmer agreed with the majority, but wrote separately to note that a special credibility instruction should be given whenever a government informer seeks a benefit from the state in return for his or her testimony. Justice Palmer further stated that a defendant is entitled to a charge that, quote, invites focus on individual predicaments of the witness and contains mention of the incentives that follow from certain transactions with the government, unquote. But because the defendant in this case made no such claim, the majority had no reason to address it. There was a somewhat surprising dissent in this case, and it comes from Chief Justice Robinson, who was joined by Mullins and Kahn. He writes, The trial court had appropriately exercised its discretion when it declined to issue a special credibility instruction as to Shannon's testimony, reasoning that the jury was well aware of Shannon's motives for testifying as both the state's attorney and defense counsel had questioned Shannon about the benefits he received for reaching out to the police and his past felony convictions, and defense counsel devoted significant portions of his closing argument to Shannon's credibility. Furthermore, Chief Justice Robinson concluded that Shannon did not qualify as a jailhouse informant and disagreed with the majority's conclusion that the location of the confession does not matter to the jailhouse informant analysis. He stated that he would limit the definition of jailhouse informant testimony to those statements made by the defendant to another inmate while both were incarcerated in order to afford the phrase its customary meaning as individuals testifying to statements made outside of the incarceration setting are simply informants or cooperating witnesses as they are not testifying to statements made in a jailhouse. Our final case for the criminal law recap this week is State v. Rayner, SC20183. It's an opinion written by Justice Kahn. There was a concurrence in this case drafted by Justice Dioria, and it was officially released on December 4th, 2020 as a slip opinion. Stay tuned for the end of this podcast. We have a treat for you. Andrew O'Shea, the appellate lawyer on this case, will talk a little bit about his experience. But for now, here are your facts. The defendant was a member of the Money Green Bedrock Street Gang in Hartford, Connecticut, and the victim, Delano Gray, was a member of a rival street gang, The Avenue. And prior to the events giving rise to the present case, the defendant and the victim were involved in two incidents stemming from the rivalry between these two gangs. During the early morning hours of June 18, 2007, the defendant called another Bedrock member, Jose Rivera, and told him that he wanted to, quote, test out a 223 caliber assault rifle, end quote, and go see if they can find any Avenue guys, which Rivera understood to mean that they were going to go look for some Avenue guys to kill. The defendant had owned that assault rifle for approximately one month, and Rivera had been with the defendant when he purchased it. The defendant picked up Rivera, and Rivera drove the vehicle around certain areas in the north end of Hartford, frequented by members of the avenue. After spotting the victim, Rivera drove back around the block, and as Rivera drove down Enfield Street for the second time, he rolled down the rear driver's side window and slowed the vehicle down to a roll. The defendant hung out of the window and started shooting the assault rifle at the victim. The victim attempted to flee, but the victim fell to the ground after taking only about three steps. The defendant kept shooting after the victim fell to the ground, firing at least 10 to 15 times, and then Rivera and the defendant drove away. The victim died as a result of these gunshot wounds to his chest and neck. On July 16, 2008, 13 months after that killing, the police recovered a 223 caliber 
Keltec assault rifle in an unrelated investigation after receiving a tip from a confidential informant. In August 2011, after being arrested for an unrelated homicide, Rivera gave a statement to the police in which he confessed to his involvement in the victim's murder, implicated the defendant as the shooter, and he identified that 223 caliber Keltec assault rifle recovered by the police in July 2008 as the weapon that the defendant used to shoot the victim. Simultaneously, in August 2011, the police met with and obtained a written statement from Deborah Parker, the victim of a shooting on Baltimore Street that occurred on February 16, 2008. And Parker identified the defendant as the shooter in that crime and stated that he had fired a rifle at her and her partner. The state's expert at trials, James Stevenson, testified that the casings recovered from the crime scenes of the Enfield Street murder and the Baltimore Street shooting were positively identified as having been fired from the 223 caliber Keltec assault rifle that had been recovered by police. In 2013, the defendant was charged with murder, conspiracy to commit the same, and criminal use of a firearm. The defendant's first jury trial, conducted in 2014, ended with a hung jury. He had a second trial in 2015, and the state charged the defendant with only one count of murder in violation of Section 53A-54A. In anticipation of testimony by Stevenson at trial, the defendant filed a motion for a Porter hearing, see State v. Porter, that's 241 Connecticut 57. A Porter analysis involves a two-part inquiry that assesses the reliability and relevance of the witness's methods. One, the party offering the expert testimony must show that the expert's methods for reaching his conclusion are reliable. And two, the proposed scientific testimony must be demonstrably relevant to the facts of the particular case in which it is offered and not simply valid in the abstract. The defendant also filed a motion in limine at his second trial to limit the scope of Stevenson's conclusions, but the trial court denied both motions. Prior to the start of the trial, the state filed a motion in which it sought permission to offer evidence of uncharged misconduct related to the Baltimore Street shooting in order to prove identity and means, which the trial court granted. The second jury returned a guilty verdict in the court, this is Judge Kwok, sentenced the defendant to 60 years in prison. An appeal made its way to the appellate court, which affirmed the judgment of the trial court and the defendant on the granting of certification appeal to the Supreme Court. On appeal, the defendant claimed that the appellate court incorrectly concluded that the trial court had properly, one, denied his motion for a porter hearing on the reliability of the ballistics evidence, two, denied his motion in limine seeking to limit the scope of testimony from the state's file arm and toolmark examiner, that's Stevenson, and then three, denied the defendant's motion to exclude uncharged misconduct evidence related to the Baltimore Street shooting, a shooting that occurred approximately eight months after the events of this case. Let's go to our first claim. This is the important one. This is the Porter hearing claim. On this first claim, the defendant argued that reports authored by the National Academy of Sciences, that's NAS for short, called into question the reliability of methodologies employed in firearm and tool mark examinations and that, as a result, a Porter hearing was necessary to determine if such evidence was even admissible. The defendant further argued that both the trial court and the appellate court construed State v. Legnani, 109 Connecticut Appellate 399, too broadly by concluding that a Porter hearing on the reliability of firearm and tool mark examinations was never necessary because it is a well-established and admissible type of evidence. Now, the Legnani case, in that case, the court held that the trial court did not abuse its discretion 
in refusing to conduct a hearing on the issue of firearm analysis, implicitly leaving a trial court the discretion to hold such a hearing. In response, in this case, the state argued that, quote, the trial court properly concluded that Legnani remained good law even after the NAS reports because courts in Connecticut and throughout the nation, including those which have conducted Porter-type hearings, have overwhelmingly reaffirmed that expert testimony regarding firearm and tool mark identification is admissible, notwithstanding the concerns expressed in that report. The Supreme Court stated that its standard of review must determine whether the trial court abused its discretion in determining that a Porter hearing was not required, and if so, it must also determine whether that ruling was nevertheless harmless. The Supreme Court, in our case, cites State v. Martinez, 143, Connecticut Appellate 541 for that standard. And the Supreme Court concluded that the appellate court improperly upheld the trial court's denial of the Porter hearing on the reliability of ballistics evidence based solely on the holding in Legnani. The Supreme Court reasoned that the trial court failed to exercise and therefore abused its discretion to determine whether the criticisms of firearm and tool mark analysis contained in the NAS report and highlighted by the defendant cast substantial enough doubt on whether the science of that field remains well established to warrant a Porter hearing. Consequently, in determining whether that error was harmless, the Supreme Court stated that the proper standard for determining whether an erroneous evidentiary ruling is harmless should be whether the jury's verdict was substantially swayed by the error, citing State v. Edwards, 325 Connecticut 97. Therefore, after reviewing the evidence in this case, the Supreme Court concluded that it lacked a fair assurance that the trial court's admission of Stevenson's testimony did not substantially affect the verdict, reasoning that Stevenson was important to the state's case. His testimony was the only objective evidence that connected the casings found at the Enfield Street murder with the 223 caliber Caltech assault rifle recovered by the police and that the jurors likely found Stevenson's expert testimony highly convincing in light of the technical nature of his analysis and his various credentials. As to the defendant's second claim, this is the motion in limine claim, the defendant argued that even if the firearm and tool mark examination evidence was admissible without a Porter hearing, the trial court improperly denied his motion in limine, which would have required Stevenson to clarify that his conclusions that certain bullet casings were fired from specific firearms were not certainties, but merely more likely than not to be correct. In response, the state argued that the specific restriction requested by the defendant, you know, more likely than not, was completely arbitrary, inaccurate, and unsupported by the law generally applicable to expert testimony. The state conceded, however, that it may be true that the methodology employed by firearm and tool mark identification experts would not currently support any representation that their conclusions are 100% infallible. The state further argued that if the Supreme Court were to adopt a rule prescribing the language that an expert must use in stating his opinion that a particular casing was fired from a specific firearm, it would support a requirement that the expert phrase his opinion in terms of a reasonable degree of certainty or a practical certainty. The standard of review on this claim is that it reviews the trial court's discretion to preclude expert testimony for abuse of discretion. But because it affords the trial courts with wide discretion in determining whether to admit expert testimony will not disturb that decision unless it is unreasonable, made on untenable grounds, or involves a clear misconception of the law, citing State v. Williams, 317 Connecticut, 691. 
The Supreme Court in this case concluded that the appellate court properly upheld the trial court's denial of the defendant's motion in limine, which sought to limit the scope of Stevenson's conclusion. The Supreme Court declined to exercise its supervisory authority to limit the scope of testimony from firearm and toolmark experts, but clarified that its decision does not preclude trial courts from imposing appropriate limits on such testimony when the trial court deems it necessary. Our third claim is uncharged misconduct. Lastly, the Supreme Court addresses this claim that the, the appellate court incorrectly upheld the trial court's admission of uncharged misconduct related to the Baltimore Street shooting. As to this claim, the defendant argued that the probative value of evidence related to a subsequent shooting, which was admitted to establish the defendant's identity and to show that he had access to the firearm used in the present case, was outweighed by its prejudicial effect. In response, the state argued that the trial court's ruling that the probative value of the Baltimore Street shooting outweighed its prejudicial impact was neither so arbitrary as to vitiate logic, nor based on improper or irrelevant factors. The state specifically highlighted that the Supreme Court has recognized the probative value of evidence when a defendant used the same weapon in another crime, and that the Supreme Court has observed that there is a reduced risk of unduly arousing the jurors' emotions when the severity of the uncharged misconduct is less than the severity of the crime at issue. The Supreme Court set forth the general rule for review that evidence of prior misconduct is inadmissible to prove that a defendant is guilty of the crime of which the defendant is accused. That's State v. Collins, 299 Connecticut, 567. Moreover, In determining whether the prejudicial effect of otherwise relevant evidence outweighs its probative value, court considers whether, one, the facts offered may unduly arouse the juror's emotions, hostility, or sympathy. Two, the proof and answering evidence it provokes may create a side issue that will unduly distract the jury from the main issues. Three, the evidence offered and the counter proof will consume an undue amount of time. And finally, four, the defendant having no reasonable ground to anticipate the evidence, is unfairly surprised and unprepared to meet it. Again, that's State versus Collins. The Supreme Court in our case concluded that the appellate court improperly upheld the trial court's denial of the motion to exclude evidence of uncharged misconduct, as the prejudicial effect of the uncharged misconduct unduly exceeded its probative value. The Supreme Court reasoned that the probative value of the Baltimore Street shooting was too low to overcome its prejudicial impact because the Baltimore Street shooting occurred eight months after the Enfield Street murder, and there was no evidence to suggest that the Baltimore Street shooting was motivated by or even related to the earlier Enfield Street murder. They were separate shootings and, with the exception of the defendant, involved different participants and unrelated victims. Parker's testimony regarding the Baltimore Street shooting was admitted to prove that the defendant had been involved in this separate subsequent gun-related crime where the shell casings happened to match the 223 caliber Caltech assault rifle, but evidence that the defendant was involved in a shooting in which he allegedly used the same weapon only minimally increased the probability that he was the shooter who used the same weapon eight months prior during the Enfield Street murder. Additionally, that assault rifle was not recovered at the scene of the Baltimore Street shooting, but instead, five months later, from a different location following a lead provided by some confidential informant, so the state did not need to introduce evidence of the Baltimore Street shooting to connect the defendant to that rifle that was used in the Enfield Street murder that the police subsequently recovered 
from a different location. And so in sum, the judgment of the appellate court was reversed and the case was remanded to that court with direction to reverse the judgment and remand that case to trial court for a new trial. Now, I mentioned a concurring opinion and it comes from Justice Dioria. He agrees with the majority majority that the trial court improperly refused to conduct a Porter hearing and that the inclusion of the contested expert evidence substantially affected the verdict, but he wrote separately to raise an issue regarding the proper remedy in cases like this one in which the trial court improperly refuses to hold such a hearing. Justice Dioria stated that he believes that there is an argument that this error can be cured by a limited remand for a Porter hearing with the vacator of the trial court's judgment following only if the trial court ultimately finds the contested expert evidence inadmissible and in a future case he would entertain an argument that once an appellate court determines that the trial court improperly refused to conduct a porter hearing and the contested expert evidence substantially affected the verdict a new trial is not automatically the proper remedy but that instead the court can direct the trial court on remand to hold the porter hearing even post-judgment not sure i agree with Justice Dioria's concurring opinion in this case. But here's one thing we all can agree on. That does it for me this week on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Dan Lage here each and every week giving you the criminal law recap from the appellate and Supreme Courts as they are published. Typically, I throw it to my man Ryan McKean with the personal injury law update, and he is on deck. But right now, we've got a special guest. It's my friend and colleague from Bridgeport, Attorney John Drapp. He'll be discussing a case that came out of the appellate court which covers the issues of probate law. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. He's up next. And remember, at the end of today's podcast, a very special interview with Andrew O'Shea from the Kirschbaum Law Group to discuss his insights on the Rayner case. For me, Dan Lage here. I'll see you next week right here on the podcast. Take care. Hi, this is John Drapp from Drapp & Yauman. I'm a Connecticut lawyer practicing in the area of estate planning, probate, elder law and real estate. I'm thrilled to be joining Dan, Ryan, and Rich this week to talk about a decision rendered by the appellate court in a case concerning a revocable trust. The case is Tunic versus Tunic, docket number AC42031, officially released December 1st, 2020. It actually has its case citation from the law journal at this point as well, which is 201 Connecticut Appellate 512. In this case, the plaintiff, Stephen Tunick, who was a remainder beneficiary of a revocable trust, brought an action for damages against his sister, Barbara Tunick, his other sister, Roberta Tunick, and Richard DePreda, the administrator of his late mother's estate in connection with the administration of that trust. Plaintiff claimed that Barbara and Sylvia, who was his mother, who had been co-trustees of the trust, had breached their fiduciary duties to him and that Sylvia, DePreda, and Roberta had fraudulently concealed facts that were necessary to establish his causes of action against them. These are the facts of the case. In 1981, the settler, David Tunick, established a David H. Tunick Revocable Trust. David and his wife, Sylvia, were named as the primary beneficiaries of the trust, and their three children, the plaintiff, Barbara, and Roberta, were all named as remainder beneficiaries. The trust provided that Sylvia would become the sole beneficiary of the trust upon David's death, and that all income and principle of the trust would be used for her benefit. 
The trust further provided that upon Sylvia's death, the plaintiff, Barbara, and Roberta would each receive equal shares of the remaining trust property. In 1997, David died, leaving Sylvia as the primary beneficiary of the trust. In 2004, Sylvia and Barbara filed an application with the probate court to remove the plaintiff as one of the co-trustees pursuant to statute. That's 45A, 242A. The court thereafter issued a written decree in which they found the plaintiff had neglected to perform the duties of the trust and ordered his removal as a co-trustee. The court also issued orders pertaining to certain antique automobiles that were part of the trust. After the plaintiff's removal, Sylvia and Barbara continued to act as co-trustees until June 2013 when the probate court issued an order removing them as co-trustees and appointing a successor trustee. After Sylvia died in 2015, the probate court appointed Depreda as the administrator of her estate. In May 2017, the plaintiff commenced his action against Barbara, Roberta, and Depreda. The trial court granted motions to strike that were filed by Depreda and Barbara as to certain counts of the complaint against them that alleged that the trust was a contract that they had breached. Roberta, Depreda, and Barbara subsequently filed motions for summary judgment in May 2018 in which they alleged that all counts of the complaint against them were time-barred pursuant to General Statute Section 52577, which is the three-year tort statute of limitations. While the three motions for summary judgment were pending, the plaintiff filed a revised complaint that added a count against Barbara sounding an unjust enrichment, which was not thereafter adjudicated in the trial court's ruling on Barbara's motion for summary judgment. Judge Trulia then granted the summary judgment motions filed by Roberta, Depreda, and Barbara. The court determined that the plaintiff's allegations of wrongdoing described conduct that occurred from 1997 to 2013, and that Roberta, Depreda, and Barbara had met their burden of showing that the plaintiff's claims were time-barred by Section 52577. The court further determined that there was no evidentiary basis for the plaintiff's claims that the statute of limitations in Section 52577 was told by the continuous course of conduct doctrine or by fraudulent concealment, and it concluded that no genuine issue of material fact existed as to when the plaintiff's causes of action accrued and when his action was commenced. He then filed an amended appeal contending that the trial court improperly granted Depreda's motion to strike a breach of contract count. The court improperly rejected the plaintiff's claim that his causes of action as a remainder beneficiary did not become ripe until the death of the primary beneficiary. Genuine issues of material fact exist as to whether his claims were time-barred under Section 52577, and the court abused its discretion in declining to grant his motion to open the judgment. Before addressing the plaintiff's claims on appeal, the appellate court first considered a jurisdictional question regarding the plaintiff's action against Barbara. Prior to oral argument, the appellate court sua sponte instructed the parties to be prepared to address whether the portion of this appeal challenging the trial court's rulings as to Barbara should be dismissed for lack of a final judgment because the trial court had yet to render a final judgment as to Barbara by disposing of the unjust enrichment count directed against her. The standard of review that the appellate court articulated was that the lack of a final judgment implicates subject matter jurisdiction of an appellate court to hear an appeal, and a determination regarding subject matter jurisdiction is a question of law. The court further stated that a judgment that disposes of only part of a complaint is not a final judgment 
unless the partial judgment disposes of all causes of action against a particular party or parties, or if the trial court makes a written determination regarding the significance of the issues resolved by the judgment and the chief justice or the chief judge of the court having appellate jurisdiction concurs. As to this jurisdictional question, the appellate court held that it lacked subject matter jurisdiction over the portion of the plaintiff's appeal that concerned the partial summary judgment rendered in favor of Barbara, as it was undisputed that his unjust enrichment count against her remained pending, and the court dismissed the portion of the appeal as to Barbara. The court reasoned that the plaintiff did not request a written determination from the trial court regarding the significance of the issues resolved by the partial summary judgment, the record did not contain a withdrawal or an unconditional abandonment of the unjust enrichment count, and, as that count remained unadjudicated, it presented the possibility that Barbara could be found liable to the plaintiff for damages. Moving to the substantive issues addressed in this appeal, the plaintiff first claimed that the trial court improperly granted DePreda's motion to strike the breach of contract count of the plaintiff's first amended complaint. In that count, the plaintiff alleged in relevant part that the trust was a contract and that Sylvia had breached the contract by her refusal to follow the trust instrument and by her unlawful actions as a fiduciary with respect to the trust. In moving to strike that count, DePreda argued that the plaintiff could not maintain a breach of contract claim because a trust is not a contract, but rather a conveyance of an equitable interest in property. The appellate court set forth the well-established standard that governs its review, stating that because a motion to strike challenges the legal sufficiency of a pleading and, consequently, requires no factual findings by the trial court, its review of the court's ruling is plenary. Here, the appellate court held that the trial court properly granted DePreda's motion to strike the breach of contract count and concluded as a matter of law that Sylvia, by agreeing to perform her duties as a trustee, did not enter into a contract to perform provisions of the trust that were enforceable by an action sounding in contract. The court also concluded that the plaintiff provided no authority in which a court has held that a trust beneficiary may bring an action sounding in contract against a trustee, and the plaintiff disregarded several critical distinctions between a trust and a contract, including that a trust needs no consideration to support it. The plaintiff next claimed that the trial court improperly rejected his claim that his causes of action as a remainder beneficiary did not become ripe until the death of the primary beneficiary, which was Sylvia. He argued that the court made a legal error in not finding that the plaintiff's action was triggered by the death of Sylvia. The plaintiff thus posited that the statute of limitations set forth in section 52.577 did not begin to run until her death on July 24, 2015. The appellate court stated that, regarding this question of law, its review is plenary. Section 52.577 provides... Quote, no action founded upon a tort shall be brought but within three years from the date of the act or omission complained of, end quote. Moreover, when conducting an analysis under Section 52577, the only facts material to the trial court's decision on a motion for summary judgment are the date of the wrongful conduct alleged in the complaint and the date the action was filed. The appellate court held that the plaintiff could not prevail on his claim that his causes of action as a remainder beneficiary did not become ripe until Sylvia's death, as that proposition contravened precedent that Section 52.577 operates as a bar to tort claims irrespective of when they accrue. The appellate court concluded that none of the conduct on the part of the defendants that the plaintiff detailed in his complaint was alleged to have occurred after June 2013, when Sylvia and Barbara were removed as co-trustees. 
The dates alleged in the complaint were the relevant metric for purpose of applying the limitation period of Section 52.577. And because the conduct described therein was beyond that limitation period, the trial court properly concluded that the defendant satisfied their burden of demonstrating the applicability of Section 52.577 to the plaintiff's tort claims. The appellate court next addressed the question of whether genuine issues of material fact existed as to whether the plaintiff's claims were time-barred under Section 52.577. The plaintiff submitted that Section 52.577 was told in this case by a. the pendency of a final accounting in the probate court, b. the continuing course of conduct doctrine, and c. fraudulent concealment. The appellate court stated that its review of the trial court's decision to grant a defendant's motion for summary judgment is plenary. Additionally, when a plaintiff asserts that the limitation period has been told by an equitable exception to the statute of limitations, the burden normally shifts to the plaintiff to establish a disputed issue of material fact in avoidance of the statute. As to the plaintiff's tolling claims, the plaintiff first argued that genuine issues of material fact existed as to whether Section 52577 was told by the pendency of a final accounting in the probate court, and that the trial court made a legal error in concluding that the limitation period of Section 52.577 commenced in 2013 because the probate court had not yet approved the accounting submitted by Sylvia and Barbara. The plaintiff contended that the limitation period of Section 52.577 does not begin to run until a final accounting has been approved in the probate court. The appellate court held that the plaintiff could not prevail on this claim. The court reasoned that the plaintiff's reliance on General Statutes 52.579 governing actions against the surety on a probate bond was misplaced, as the limitation period in that statute, unlike Section 52.577, expressly is conditioned on the probate court's approval of a final accounting. In this case, there was no allegation or evidence of the existence of a probate bond, the operative complaint contained no claim against the surety of a probate bond, and the only facts under Section 52.577 that were material to the trial court's ruling were the date of the wrongful conduct alleged in the complaint and the date the action was filed. Furthermore, although the plaintiff conceded that he was not suing on a surety bond, he nevertheless argued that the analysis under Sections 52.577 and 52.579 were the same. As previously mentioned, when conducting an analysis under Section 52.577, the only facts material to the trial court's decision on a motion for summary judgment are the date of the wrongful conduct alleged in the complaint and the date the action was filed. Moreover, the appellate court concluded that the plaintiff provided no authority, nor was the court aware of any, in which it has been held that the limitation period of Section 52.577 is automatically told for tort claims against a trustee due to the pendency of a final accounting in the probate court. As such, the appellate court was not inclined to articulate such a per se rule and believed that the accounting issue, which implicated the fiduciary duty of a removed trustee, properly fell within the purview of the continuous course of conduct doctrine. The plaintiff next argued that genuine issues of material fact existed as to whether Section 52.577 was told in the present case by the continuing course of conduct doctrine. The appellate court stated that the continuing course of conduct doctrine operates to delay the commencement of the running of an otherwise applicable statute of limitations. Moreover, when presented with a motion for summary judgment under the continuous course of conduct doctrine, the court must determine whether there is a genuine issue of material fact with respect to whether the defendant 1. committed an initial wrong upon the plaintiff, 2. 
owed a continuing duty to the plaintiff that was related to the alleged original wrong, and three, continually breach that duty. Additionally, the issue of whether a party has engaged in a continuing course of conduct that told the running of a statute of limitations is a mixed question of law and fact. The appellate court held that the plaintiff could not prevail on this claim that genuine issues of material fact existed as to whether Section 52.577 was told by the continuing course of conduct doctrine. Regarding the plaintiff's counts against Roberta, the appellate court concluded that the trial court properly concluded that the continuing course of conduct doctrine did not apply to the claims against her because, although the plaintiff had asserted in his complaint that he suffered money damages as a result of Roberta's conduct from 1997 through 2013, he did not offer affidavits or other proof that she had engaged in activity with respect to the trust after June of 2013, he did not allege that she owed a legal duty to him, and Roberta was never a trustee and did not stand in a fiduciary relation to the plaintiff. Regarding Sylvia and Depreta, the appellate court concluded that the plaintiff had not established the existence of a genuine issue of material fact as to whether Sylvia and Depreta committed a continuous breach of the fiduciary duty owed to remainder beneficiaries that resulted in enhanced injury to him. Although the court concluded that the plaintiff met his burden of establishing prong number two of the continuing course of conduct test, reasoning that Sylvia, having served as a trustee from 1993 to June 11, 2013, owed a fiduciary duty to the plaintiff as a remainder beneficiary of the trust, the court concluded that the plaintiff did not meet his burden of establishing prong number three. As to prong number three, the court reasoned that, contrary to the plaintiff's allegation that Sylvia and Depreta engaged in a continuing course of conduct by failing to account for the automobiles and automobile parts, which was the only factual allegation in the plaintiff's pleadings of a continuous breach of the fiduciary duty owned to the remainder beneficiary subsequent to Sylvia's removal, that failure did not constitute a series of events that gave rise to a cumulative injury, and the subsequent injury that the plaintiff allegedly sustained following Sylvia's removal as trustee, which was the failure to obtain an accounting of the automobile assets, was the same injury he had allegedly incurred prior to her removal. As to the plaintiff's last tolling claim, the plaintiff argued that a genuine issue of material fact existed as to whether Sylvia, Depreta, and Roberta fraudulently concealed the plaintiff's causes of action against them, such that the statute of limitations was told by the application of Section 52.595. Additionally, although it is well established that the burden normally shifts to the plaintiff to establish a disputed issue of material fact on its claim that the limitation period has been told by an equitable exception, the plaintiff contended that, because this case involved a fiduciary relationship between the parties, the burden should instead rest with the defendants to demonstrate that they did not engage in fraudulent concealment. As a preliminary matter, the appellate court addressed the burden-shifting argument raised by the plaintiff with respect to this claim. The appellate court declined the plaintiff's invitation to revisit the legal standard, reasoning that our Supreme Court has held that the burden of establishing fraudulent concealment properly belongs to the party seeking to avail itself of that tolling doctrine, and the appellate court, as an intermediate appellate tribunal, is not at liberty to modify, reconsider, or overrule precedent of the Supreme Court. Regarding the claim of fraudulent concealment, the appellate court held that the plaintiff could not prevail on this claim, determining that the trial court had properly concluded that no genuine issue of material fact existed with respect to the plaintiff's claim that Sylvia, Depreta, and Roberta fraudulently concealed his causes of action against them.
The court reasoned that, in order to toll the statute of limitations under Section 52.595, a plaintiff must present evidence that a defendant, one, had actual awareness, rather than imputed knowledge, of the facts necessary to establish the plaintiff's cause of action, two, intentionally concealed those facts from the plaintiff, and three, concealed the facts for the purpose of obtaining delay on the plaintiff's part in filing a complaint on his cause of action. In accordance with those factors, the appellate court in this case stated that the plaintiff did not provide clear and unequivocal evidence that Sylvia, DePreda, or Roberta had one, actual awareness of the facts necessary to establish the plaintiff's cause of action, two, had intentionally concealed such facts from him, as the trial court carefully reviewed all of the materials that the plaintiff submitted in an opposition to the defendant's motion for summary judgment, and three, such materials did not show any intent on the part of the defendants to conceal facts or support a finding that their alleged concealment was directed toward delaying commencement of an action against them. The plaintiff's final claim on appeal was that the trial court improperly denied his motion to open the judgment. In that motion, the plaintiff claimed that newly discovered evidence warranted the opening of the summary judgment rendered in favor of the defendants, and he specifically contended that testimony from DePreda during a November 2018 Superior Court proceeding regarding an award of attorney's fees for work performed by DePreda subsequent to Sylvia's removal as trustee directly contravened DePreda's contention that Sylvia had no continuing duty to the remainder beneficiaries following her removal as trustee on June 11, 2013. According to the plaintiff, the judgment must be open to permit him to present that evidence in support of his claim that Sylvia possessed a fiduciary duty that continued beyond June 11, 2013. The appellate court stated that when, during the pendency of an appeal, events have occurred that preclude an appellate court from granting any practical relief through its disposition of the merits, a case has become moot. Here, the appellate court held that this claim was moot and dismissed that portion of the plaintiff's appeal challenging the propriety of the denial of his motion to open the judgment. The court reasoned that there was no practical relief that could be afforded to the plaintiff, as the plaintiff's request to submit what he asserted was newly discovered evidence that contravened DePreda's contention that Sylvia had no continuing duty to the remainder beneficiaries after her removal as a co-trustee in June 2013 ostensibly supported a legal conclusion that Sylvia owed such a duty following her removal. That conclusion had already been rendered by the appellate court in this opinion. In sum, the appeal was dismissed only as to the portions challenging the partial summary judgment rendered in favor of Barbara and the denial of the plaintiff's motion to open the judgment. The judgment was affirmed in all other respects. That will do it for me this week. Again, I'm John Drapp. If I can be of assistance to you or any of your clients in any way, please feel free to contact me. My telephone number is 203-690-1732. Email is jdrapp at drappyauman.com. Yauman is J-A-U-M-A-N-N. And I'm also on most of the major social media platforms. Have a great week. Next up, Injury Law Cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. 
Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut attorney Ryan McKean here, and this week I'm discussing the appellate court's decision in Vaccaro versus Lascalzo. The decision is Appellate Court 42951. The decision was rendered by Judge Bright, and it is officially released on December 8, 2020. In this case, the plaintiffs had sought to recover damages for the alleged wrongful death of a decedent as a result of the defendant's negligence and appealed from the judgment of the trial court dismissing for failure to prosecute with due diligence their substitute complaint against the defendants claiming that the trial court abused its discretion in dismissing the substitute complaint. The takeaway from this case is that a court, after assessing the proportionality of a sanction, may find that a persistent pattern of neglect is sufficient basis for the court to exercise its discretion and dismiss a case for failure to prosecute with reasonable diligence pursuant to practice book section 14-3. And here are the facts of this case. In May of 2016, the plaintiffs, acting as administrator for the estate of Marie J. Vaccaro and Enrico Vaccaro, now deceased husband of Marie Vaccaro, commenced an action. In January 17th, counsel filed, January 2017, excuse me, counsel filed a joint scheduling order that included various deadlines. Yet despite those clear deadlines, as well as various pleadings and motions filed by defendants, the plaintiffs did not serve any discovery, take any depositions, close the pleadings, disclose any experts, or respond to outstanding discovery requests. In October 2018, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss for lack of diligence, and the court scheduled a show cause hearing for December 10, 2018. At the December 10, 2018 hearing, plaintiff's counsel represented to the court reasons why deadlines and discovery compliance were not met and that he needed 30 days to file a motion to withdraw and to assist the plaintiffs in getting new counsel. The counsel in this case is attorney Paul Edwards. Attorney Edwards acknowledged that the case had not been prosecuted diligently and that the status of the case was no fault of the plaintiffs, but due to his own inactions. On Pursuant to the December 10, 2018 hearing, the court issued an order directing Attorney Edwards to file a motion to withdraw by January 9, 2019, and that new counsel file an appearance by the same date. The court rescheduled argument on the motion to dismiss for January 14, 2019. Attorney Edwards appeared at the January 14, 2019 hearing, but again failed to comply with the court's order and stated the reason he did not file the withdrawal was not because was because he was not comfortable filing such a motion and leaving the plaintiffs hanging. 
Pursuant to the January 14, 2019 hearing, the court ordered Attorney Edwards to file a motion to withdraw no later than February 13, 2019. It further ordered the plaintiff, Enrico Vaccaro, to file an appearance by that date, as he could have filed an appearance as an attorney acting on behalf of himself as the administrator of the estate or have new counsel do so. Following more continuances, the plaintiffs did not obtain new counsel and objected to Attorney Edwards withdrawing from this case. On March, in March 2019, the court denied the motion to withdraw filed by Attorney Edwards and in April 2019 granted the defendant's motion to dismiss for failure to prosecute with due diligence. This appeal followed. On appeal... The plaintiffs claimed that the trial court abused its discretion in dismissing the substitute complaint for failure to prosecute with diligence. The plaintiffs argued that the sanction of dismissal was disproportionate under the totality of the circumstances, particularly where lesser sanctions were available and appropriate, and the plaintiffs themselves were not in any way responsible for the status of the case and the failure to comply with discovery. In response, the defendants countered that the plaintiff's persistent pattern of complete neglect was more than a sufficient basis for the trial court to exercise its discretion and dismiss the case for failure to prosecute with reasonable diligence. As support, the defendants argued that the record revealed a persistent pattern of violating half a dozen court orders over the course of one year, that no discovery had been completed in three years, and the trial court was patient and clear with each order, granting many extensions and continually warning that the case was subject to dismissal if the plaintiffs did not comply. The appellate court, citing this standard of review, states that practice book section 14-3 permits a trial court to dismiss an action with costs if a, if a party fails to prosecute the action with reasonable diligence and the ultimate determination regarding a motion to dismiss for lack of diligence is within the discretion of the trial court. The appellate court also states, although a trial court has wide discretion in determining whether to dismiss an action for failure to prosecute it with due diligence, sanctions imposed by the court must be proportional to the violation of misconduct, and a trial court order must consider the totality of the circumstances in order to assess proportionality. In Ridgeway versus Mount Vernon Fire Insurance Company, our Supreme Court identified the following factors in determining the proportionality of a sanction. Factor one, the nature and frequency of the misconduct. Factor two, notice of the possibility of a sanction. Factor three, the availability of lesser sanctions. And factor four, the client's participation in or knowledge of the misconduct. The appellate court concluded under the Ridgeway factors that the court's sanction of dismissal was proportional to the plaintiff's misconduct in that, under factor one, the court carefully set forth a pattern of misconduct by the plaintiffs over the course of three years. Factor two, the plaintiffs were clearly on notice of the possibility of a sanction as the defendants began requesting a judgment of dismissal as a sanction in November 2017, and the court repeatedly notified the plaintiffs that a dismissal would be forthcoming if they continued their pattern of delays. 
Factor three, the court demonstrated the use of alternatives to dismissal by issuing new orders and warnings of dismissal, which the plaintiffs continuously failed to comply with. And factor four, although the court squarely put the blame for repeated violations of its orders on attorney Edwards, the records demonstrated that the plaintiffs were aware of the misconduct. Accordingly, the appellate court held that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in dismissing the plaintiff's complaint for failure to prosecute with di- with dil- due diligence and the judgment was affirmed by the appellate court so this is a useful case on understanding of the trial court's power to issue sanctions and uh, warnings to counsel for the consequences of failing to comply with those sanctions and that the appellate court is um, you know going to defer to the inherent powers of the trial court providing they fire they follow the factors set forth in uh, Ridgeway versus Mount Vernon Fire Insurance Company 328 Connecticut 60 so i hope you've enjoyed this week um, if you are looking for a brand new free copy of my Connecticut tort law book, um, just uh, send a message into the podcast or send me an email, ryan at cttrialfirm.com, and I will choose one lucky winner to receive a copy of my new Connecticut tort law book in which we review decisions by Connecticut appellate and Supreme Court for the past three and a half years from 2017 to mid-2020. Thank you. Next up, family law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hi, this is Rich Rockland. Uh, There are no new cases this week, but as soon as there are new cases, we'll have them up and reviewed and ready to go. Have a great week. Do you want to get into social media marketing? Unsure of where to begin? The Firm Flex DIY plan was created for small firm and solo lawyers who want to start social media marketing for their firm but can't commit to the large budgets many agencies charge. In just five minutes a day, with the help of the Firm Flex coaches, you get daily ideas, weekly themes, hashtags, and stock images you can use to post on social media and market your firm. With a private and vibrant Facebook group you can always turn to, the Firm Flex DIY plan gives you the ultimate control over your marketing. By using the Firm Flex DIY program, as well as our weekly coaching and industry leading hacks, you can set your social media up for success, all for around $3 a day. Try it today at getfirmflex.com slash DIY. All right, as promised, we have a special guest this week on the podcast, and he has had quite the year. Most notably, his work helping lead to the exoneration of 
Ralph Birch and Sean Henning by highlighting false testimony given by Dr. Henry Lee. Then there was the case of Jamie Gomez, a conviction overturned in New London because my guest pointed out that the state did not correct false testimony by key witnesses. And recently, again, pointing out the shortcomings of expert testimony in the case of Donald Rayner, leading to a new trial. One of the leaders of the next generation of Connecticut lawyers, Andrew O'Shea, welcome to the podcast. Um, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. I don't know if all of that necessarily true, but uh, but thank you. I, I appreciate it. That's what all the great ones say. Hey, listen, so we covered the case earlier in the show. Our listeners should be well aware of the facts. Tell us, Andrew O'Shea, when you first came across the case, did you know right away where you were headed with the appeal? No, I didn't at all. Uh, it's funny to look back. I was just looking back in the timeline how long ago that was. No, we got it. And um, just like every appellate case that I have, I, I looked through the whole record uh, in depth and I identified a number of different potential issues. And then for each issue, um, did research. Uh, and then I tried to uh, gauge how strong each one was and then select the issues that we wanted to raise. And this one, when I hit across Stevenson's testimony and I saw all the great work that um, Dan Irwin did below, um, as well as uh, Norm Pattis and, and preserving this claim, it, it really struck me you know, immediately once I, if I hit that part of the record, this could be really, really good um, because they were making some really compelling arguments that the um, trial court was just ignoring, uh, to my surprise. Um, so so it wasn't immediate as, as I was taking the case, but after reviewing the record, <clears throat> then it became pretty quickly apparent that at least the Porter issue was certainly going to be one that we'd be pursuing. I've heard speaking with numerous appellate lawyers, they've said, you know, if it's not on the record, it's not in the record. How important is it for lawyers like Norm Pattis and Dan Irwin to do that groundwork in order to preserve those issues when an appellate lawyer like yourself is looking to complete the efforts on appeal? It's so critical, um, and, and, and that's why it's so nice to, that, that when you see someone like uh, Norman Dan do such a great job um, preserving it here. I mean, uh, they made oral motions, they filed written motions, and um, and they were right on top of the issues. They mastered the not only the case law, but also the um, particular um, facts with the National Academy of Science report and, and all of that. And um, now, I mean, there are some exceptions, exceptions to that. Certainly, you know, if there were a constitutional claim, then as you've talked about in the podcast, there's uh, Golding where that the issue can be nevertheless raised. But it's always better from an appellate perspective to have it preserved below because it also, if it's been preserved below, it also, it's, it's a more convincing argument that this really was a big deal. I mean, that, that trial, if trial counsel didn't see it below, then it, it makes it, um, it can undermine your argument sometimes as to the, the harm in particular, you know, what it meant um, that the issue wasn't raised. But that's something that we we train our attorneys as well, um, and we go through practices of you know what do you do if the court does X Y Z to prevent you from being able to um, pursue creating the record that's necessary. I mean, it's really important when litigating a, litigating a case to always be um, keeping an eye towards if there is an appeal, making sure that the record is preserved for that. You know, this case is a good illustration of one of the pitfalls of stare decisis in that some important developments in culture, society, or as in here, scientific review may be glossed over because as the state put it in this case, the evidence has been overwhelmingly admitted, notwithstanding the concerns raised by the science on appeal. How do you grapple with that legal inertia? And then beyond that, 
the standard of review to show that the court abused its discretion when it made its ruling. Yeah, that's always tough, and and certainly the challenge here. So so here, what I did was, um, it seemed to me that everyone was misreading Lignani. One of the things that I did looking into was I pulled out the the briefs from Lignani and I pulled out the the, the record from Lignani to look into what exactly happened there. And in Lignani, um, no one raised a challenge uh, um, regarding the new discoveries that came out starting in 2008 and then really solidified in 2009 and, and passed then about how this entire field of forensic tool mark analysis uh, lacks foundational validity. No one's actually ever bothered to, to test to see if the methodologies that have been promulgated actually survive any scientific scrutiny, um, and which is sort of shocking to learn that that's never happened. Um, and Lignani, no, that wasn't the argument that was raised at all. And so it was a fundamentally different type of argument over there. So instead of having to combat stare decisis or anything like that, um, I was, you know, one of the arguments and the one that the court ended up agreeing with was that the, um, the trial court and the appellate court were misreading Lignani, that Lignani didn't actually bind the decision here. Lignani actually just stood for the principle that if no compelling uh, new evidence is revealed um, that would that would undermine a prior porter determination and uh, something that otherwise had been well settled, then certainly it makes sense as Porter itself um, discussed that you don't need to keep doing a porter hearing over and over again. So that was one way to, to combat the stare decisis. The other thing, we didn't have to worry about that so much once we were at the Supreme Court because this was an appellate court decision. And when we were at the appellate court, we tried motioning for en banc review, which is uh, therefore allows the court to overturn a prior decision if the court felt that Lignani did bind it, as it ultimately did. But they denied a request for en banc review. Um, as far as the abuse of discretion standard, that um, yeah, that's always something that we're keeping an eye on. Any claim we're raising, uh, as I'm sure you know, you know, and everyone else does too, you're looking at what is the standard of review as part of that to assess the strength of it. And abuse of discretion is certainly usually a, a, a more lenient standard review where it differs more to the trial court. But as the court pointed out here, it really hinges on the court um, uh, exercising its discretion in some way. Um, and, and here the court sort of abdicated uh, its, its responsibilities um, for gatekeeping by refusing to even uh, hold a porter hearing to look into the reliability of this evidence. So even though abuse of discretion certainly was a factor in looking and considering the case, we felt like we had a, a pretty strong argument here and the Supreme Court agreed um, that, um, that we could overcome that. You know, as you just outlined, part of the reason the Supreme Court ruled in your favor is that it, it held that Judge Kwok essentially abused his discretion by not using his discretion. I don't know if that's more like a Johnny Cochran euphemism. If, if you don't use, you must abuse or, or something like that. But <laughs> do you think a more careful ruling by Judge Kwok could have resulted in your appeal being denied? Um Yes and no. It could have affected the result on the uh, Porter hearing, possibly. I think that certainly a court, if the court was trying to be crafty and to uh, structure the ruling, um, focusing on just trying to preserve the uh, appellate review, um, certainly there's a lot that could be done there. And if there, if there were, a diff if this were handled differently, if there were a Porter hearing granted and if the court articulated um, uh, a particular decision on the Porter hearing, um, then it would have been stronger on um, appeal, depending on what the what the reasons were, right? Um, but certainly by not doing anything um, and refusing to do the board hearing, 
you know, uh, because the state, to be fair to the court, the state was the one that argued to it from the beginning that uh, Lignani bound the court. And then the court ended up agreeing with that um, down below. Were you concerned at all of a finding of harmless error in spite of your argument detailing the considerable developing criticism in full mark analysis generally? Were you concerned about the court falling on a harmless error outcome? Yes, that certainly was a concern. Um, but in this case, um, it wasn't as large of a concern for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It wasn't as large of a concern for me because the case here was so – it hinged entirely on the credibility of one man who was a confessed murderer, attacker. He confessed to lying to other people in order to be able to then attack somebody. Uh, I mean, and, and the the litany of – uh, impeachment evidence against them was just shocking. And only some of it was outlined by the Supreme Court in, it, in its decision. But I think that that just how unreliable a witness like that is, it, you know, outlines <clears throat> why a harm, harmless error analysis is not something that we, we were able to prove that. Because as I'm sure you know, and you've talked about it, I know you talked about the podcast, this harm analysis here is more difficult for an evidentiary issue uh, like this, but here, once you struck out the um, testimony of Stevenson, um, then it uh, all of the Deborah Parker. There, there was this other shooting that came in as prior misconduct. That all gets knocked down, and so then you're really you're left with just this one confessed murderer who is doing testifying expressly to get an enormous deal from the state, <clears throat> and so it's clearly harm. The, I did want to go back. That reminded me. There was another part of your question about if we were worried of, um, that if Judge Kwok had articulated his decision differently on the Porter hearing, would would that have affected the outcome? And the other reason I don't think it would have affected the outcome is that um, there was still the uncharged misconduct issue, which was a, a big issue. I mean, almost half of the case is something somewhere around a third of the case really is uh, the uh, testimony regarding the um, Baltimore Street uh, attack. Um, and in that itself was incredibly unreliable as well. I mean, if you look at Deborah Parker, um, her testimony, I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to her because it seems like she clearly was the victim of an attack, but she has almost every classic sign of uh, uh, eyewitness identification that's erroneous. Um, and so it was extraordinarily uh, weak testimony as far as the identity of, of uh, Mr. Rayner being involved in that in any way. Um, so I think that even if the Porter hearing uh, really had gone differently, we still uh, may have uh, re received relief simply on the uh, inadmissible prior misconduct as well. There was somewhat of a team effort here. There were amicus briefs filed at the Supreme Court by the Connecticut Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, the Innocence Project, both here in Connecticut and the national uh, organization as well. How involved were those lawyers with your crafting of your presentation for the Supreme Court? Um, not at all. Um, and, and I, I mean, they, so as far as that goes, they, they did an amazing job and I, and I thought their uh, amicus briefs were fantastic and I'm extraordinarily thankful for uh, their contributions and adding their insights to the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I sort of, we were a separate entity. We pursued the case independently, and then we, we recognized, uh, you know, immediately how important this was after the ruling from the appellate court. Given the way that the, you know, the ruling from the appellate court was very deeply problematic, and if that stood, it, it could wreak 
uh, havoc uh, through the justice system, because the reasoning there was this forensic quote unquote science has was has been admissible before, so it's forever admissible, and that's um, deeply problematic because the nature of science itself is that we're always learning new things and developing it as the Supreme Court recognized, and it's in lovely language about that as well. Um, and so we reached out to these other organizations and look, this is. This affects a lot more than, uh, you know, just Mr. Rayner and and, um, and even just in Connecticut. It's a, this is a bigger thing, and and they all uh, thankfully contributed their massive brains and and um, and submitted their own thoughts on the case. What did you think of Justice Eckert's concurrence, where he wrote separately to say, well, you know, perhaps in a case like this, we don't necessarily need to reverse the entire judgment. We could just have the Porter hearing post judgment make the determination from there, and perhaps then at that point, if we find that there was a problem with the uh, purported testimony, we can then have the trial. Uh, if not, we can preserve the judgment. What did you think about that concurrence? Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts about that. It's certainly something we thought of. And it was actually <laughs> Justice Doria who, who wrote that one. But, but Oh, sorry, yeah. it, was, it was Doria. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. The the. It's, it's something that I thought about for sure when we were you know, crafting the arguments and, and briefing and, um, and preparing for our arguments. But um, ultimately, I, I understand where he's coming from, and I do think it's worth thinking more about. Um, but it, it becomes an issue if, the, if the, the verdict is already in and the court already ruled, it, it becomes a lot more like structural error when you're trying to figure out, um, well, I guess it's not really like structural error. It's something I need to think about a lot more. Is what's apparent, obviously. The um, but um, but ultimately, I do think that the the personally uh, that the the prior case law on this that sort of succinctly addressed the issue. I I, I think that's a, a reasonable basis as well about you know what if if the Porter hearing was improperly denied from the first place and that never even happened and the court abdicated its uh, uh, gatekeeping responsibilities entirely like that then we should just jump to a, a harm analysis um, rather than retroactively having an, another hearing that it just it becomes a little bit murkier. But I absolutely understand his uh, desire to explore that issue more. I think it's worth some thought. And, and it was it was not something that I think given we didn't have space, there was, there was a lot to write about in these briefs to you know, touch every single issue. So I'm not sure if you're in the sports, uh, Andy, but I am. And, and a long time ago, Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player to ever live, broke a record. He gets 92 goals, which by far and away was the, the most amount in a season ever in the NHL. And his quote was, well, you know, it was a thrill to get it, but I thought I let myself down because I didn't get 100. Maybe I should have pushed myself even more. Uh, so putting aside the fact that you prevailed here on appeal, how did you feel about the result? Did you think about this that you know it's a win? A win is a win for Mr. Rayner, or did you nonetheless find ways that you could have improved, or even have been critical of the language in the opinion? What do you think? Oh yeah, there's oh, I mean, always ways to improve, and uh, and I'm always kicking myself for things that I miss. Uh, every time I reread a brief that I've worked on, I'm you know always wincing at different sentences. That's just part of I guess who I am. But the um, but I, I I'm just ecstatic for, for Mr. Rayner really on this and his family. I mean, um, this, you know, is, is hugely meaningful. This conviction from the beginning was uh, very, very problematic. Like I said, it's based on the testimony of uh, uh, someone who um, 
he's arrested on something, and then he confesses to that, and then he starts looking for deals and claiming that he has knowledge about other cases, and then he fing pointing his finger at a lot of people, and one of the pe persons that got caught up in that for this case was um, uh, Mr. Rayner, and, and that was the evidence, was him and then uh, Stevenson's uh, testimony trying to connect this shooting to another shooting that was I mean, tenuous is a kind word to, to give it as far as uh, the probative value of that for um, Mr. Rainer being involved in. So really, really happy for, for him and his family for, for getting um, this result and, the, and really for the court recognizing um, this injustice and, and stepping in and fixing it. Every week we recap cases here on the podcast as they are released here in Connecticut. Sometimes we get some pretty vanilla cases. But sometimes we get great cases like yours. Can you give our listeners one case from your experience with the law that means the most to you in your daily practice. Wow. I've never thought about that before. Well, for me, it's, it's always been the Gideon case far and away. That's the most important case to me as a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, so perhaps that might help inspire your answer. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have just one in you know, those particular areas of the law that, that captivate me. Um, innocence law is very is something that uh, actual innocence claims and, and attempts to pursue that, um, but but that's full of actually more uh, disappointments than you know something like Gideon where you look to and say a shining example of, of stepping mm -hmm. forward and, and fixing things. Um, no, I'm sorry to disappoint. I, I've never I've never really uh, been taken by a single case like that so much. Well, thank you, Andy Osei, for being here, giving our listeners the opportunity to uh, gain some insight as to what you were thinking as you ultimately uh, prevailed in Donald Rayner's case, earning him a new trial. Uh, any expectations or any news to report on that front? No. Uh, this, you know, the state has the, those 10 days to file the motion for reconsideration. Um, I'm not sure what they're planning. Uh, they, they may file one. We'll, we'll find out soon enough. And we'll see all of you next week right here on the podcast. Thank you, Andy Osei, Supervisory Attorney with the Kirschbaum Law Group here in Connecticut and winner of the Rayner case at the Supreme Court level. Good luck to you. Good luck to your client. We'll see all of you here next week on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating. You can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office. Or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.